Good morning, everybody. Uh, so good to be with you. Um, my name's Jose. If you're new here, thrilled that you're here for the final uh, two messages over the next couple of weeks in a year-long study in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go to Acts 28, and we'll be there in a few minutes. As you turn to Acts uh, 28, I can't say enough about the importance of March 13th. Please, we rarely ask you to to come to extra things. We believe that church is not a place that you go to, but it's a people you're a part of. So we value our gatherings, but then we really value what you do throughout the week in a home or a coffee shop or at someone's business, loving one another, caring for one another. So we're a church that gathers and scatters. We think that if we have you here too much, you'll have no margin in your world for real relationships midweek. But from time to time, we call you out. So we've done these things called seek days, or we call a day of fasting and prayer for a move of God. Well, we've been meeting with the pastors in the area, and we've been praying and planning now for this thing called Together. And I'm asking you, please, come at 9 or 11 on the 13th, but make the effort, DVR that golden thing that must be seen on Sunday night. Be back here for 7, no preaching, mostly worship, encountering God with, with men and women from other churches, worshiping the same Jesus together, and specifically praying for a move of God in our city as most people think about Jesus two times a year, Easter and Christmas. But Christmas, they're enamored by their new iPhone. So we believe that Easter is even even better time for us to talk about Jesus together. So please be there. If, if you didn't catch my drift, I'm saying please. Show up, and we've got license plate numbers. We know where you are. We track stuff. We don't. We're not that good. Um, but I'm asking you to come. We're, we're praying for a move of God in our city. A move of God. That's exactly what Paul is praying for. If you've been with us in Acts 28, for years, God, by the Spirit, has led him to believe that Paul's going to be used to see a move of God in the city called Rome. And, and it, was, it was predicted years ago when, when Paul first became a Christian that he would eventually take this good news of Jesus before kings. And there is no greater king than Emperor Caesar. And so Paul, if you've been with us, has made his way all the way to Rome. And look at what happens. We'll start in verse 16 is where we ended last week, so we'll pick it up there. It says, when we got to Rome, that's Luke writing, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So he's under house arrest, and he's waiting for his moment to be used by God to preach to Caesar. And then verse 17, three days later, he called together a local, uh, the local Jewish leaders. And when, he had when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. You remember back from probably a month ago. He's in Jerusalem. They falsely accuse him of bringing a non-Jew into the temple area, which is for their culture the worst thing. It's like wearing duck gear at a beaver game. It just you just you just don't do it, right? Unless civil war, another story. But certain things are just taboo. For them to bring a non-Jew into the temple area was taboo. And so Paul is falsely accused of that. And they're about to kill him in the temple court. 
And the Romans, remember, save his life literally. Verse 18, they examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any of, uh, of the crimes deserving death. So they, they did an investigation in Jerusalem. They couldn't find anything wrong, but the Jews pressed the charges. Verse 19, the Jews objected. So I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. Remember, this was over a few years. Paul is holed up in prison on charges that they have yet to prove, and he's waiting to be released, but the Jews in Jerusalem do not relent. He says, I certainly did not intend to bring any charges against my own people. So by him appealing to Caesar, right, Paul could now be accused of trying to make his own countrymen look bad, his own Jewish people look bad. And Paul's just giving his defense, like, I haven't done any of this. Verse 20, for this reason I Asked to see you and talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. I am a prisoner. I'm in chains, but I'm a part of you, is what he, what he says. And they replied, verse 21, uh, we've not received any letter from Judea, that's what Jerusalem is, concerning you. And none of our people who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect. This is early, the first few decades of Jesus' resurrection. And so you got to remember, in the first century, in these early decades, following Jesus was not seen as Christianity, some other religion. It was seen as a, a sect, a group of Jews believed that Jesus was this Messiah. So I just want us to see a couple of things to state the obvious. What's happening? Paul gives three, three reasons for his defense. He was right here in the text. I've done nothing against the Jewish people. So notice he says, brothers. He says, our people, our customs. Paul, whenever he's sharing the gospel with Jews, is saying, I'm you. We're in this together. I just... I have insight into Jesus that you may not have heard about. So he's like, I've done, I've done nothing wrong. And secondly, the, room, the Romans wanted to set me free. Now he's, he's setting it up because he realizes at some point the people from Jerusalem are going to make it to Rome and accuse Paul of the same things they accused him of in Jerusalem. So he's like, guys, the Romans wanted to set me free. I'm part of you. And the third thing. Because the Jews objected to his release, I appeal to Caesar. I am not here to bring trouble against the Jewish people. But ironically, this is what happens. As he's giving his defense, then they clue in, and we just read it. They're like, Paul, we don't even know what you're talking about. Paul has for years been waiting to give his big defense he almost dies in a shipwreck along the way. God saves him again and again and again. And now he's got his big moment and he wants to share with the Jews. And for some reason they're like, we don't even know what you're talking about. We've had people coming back and forth from Jerusalem and we don't get it. Now why don't they get it? We don't know for sure. It could be that the people in Jerusalem, just like Paul, was traveling by boat. There was bad weather. There was destructive winds and waves in the winter. It was terrible to sail. It could be that they're on their way. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. It could be that they're not going to show up. A little bit of insight. Paul is a Roman citizen. As a Roman citizen, he's appealed to the highest Roman authorities. Like going to the Supreme Court. The Jews in Jerusalem know these are trumped up charges. It could be that they're never going to show up in, in Rome. 
Because Paul has the rights of a Roman citizen. Most are not. Most Jews are not. But Paul was born into citizenship. And because of that, he's got Caesar on his side. And Caesar's not going to want to go against another citizen on trumped up charges by these non-citizens. We don't know. But we do know another thing. Emperor Claudius was in power from A.D. 40, and he was a vicious Roman emperor. And he disliked the Jews. He actually expelled all the Jews, kicked them out of Rome in A.D. 40. Now, he dies in A.D. 54, which is right before this happens. But to be a Jew in Rome was dangerous. The government was anti-Semitic. And so it could be that the, the Jews in Jerusalem like, we're not going to Rome. <laughs> They kicked us out. It's dangerous. What if, what if Paul, who's convincing speaker, turns Rome against us? Again, what we don't know, we don't know. But for some reason, these charges aren't going to stick. But look at, look at verse 22. But Paul, we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Here's what I want us to clue in on. Paul is anxious and wondering about his defense about these charges against him. So far, does he have to answer for these charges? No. Instead, God brings him to Rome and sets him up with a unique opportunity to talk to these people about Jesus. So what does Paul do? Does Paul drop the ball? No. Verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and and even in larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He, Paul, witnessed to them from morning till evening. We have an hour and a half gathering or so. They go all day. Wouldn't you just love that? No, you wouldn't. But they go from morning to evening explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, Paul tried to persuade them about Jesus from all of the Bible. We call it the Old Testament now, the first 39 books of what we have in our 66. He takes the Bible that they know and all day long he talks about the kingdom of God, which is the story of the the Jewish people. He gets in their language. He speaks their lingo and gives them the good news of Jesus in a way that they understand. Now, I love it. He's worried about being on trial in front of Caesar, and God says, pause, I have a group of people for you to speak with. Why don't you just tell the good news of these Jews? Now this is amazing, and I love it because it reminds us, and write this down, don't worry about the what if. Don't worry about what if. Now, like, what if? What if this happens? How many hours do you and I give over to worry? What if they say this? What if they say that? What if they do this? What if they do that? What if they don't see? What if they see what's going on in my world? What if, what if, what if? How much headspace right now is given in your brain to what if scenarios? Now again, Jerusalem to Rome, trial, none of these details relate to us. But the scenario that he's going through is absolutely relatable. Sometimes in life, things don't go according to plan, right? Paul went to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. Good thing or bad? It's a good thing. 
He gets arrested, which is a bad thing. He gets kept in jail for two plus years, a bad thing. He gets shipped to Rome, a bad thing because he almost dies at sea. He makes it to Malta. He preaches the gospel, probably plants a church. Now he's here in Rome. And you've got to wonder when you're on the ship chained to two Roman guards, you've got to wonder, am I ever getting out of this mess? Now you have to know, Paul is not afraid to speak up. And the worst thing that you can do for a public speaker is stick them in a room with just a couple of people. Because what, what Paul wants to do is Paul's preached to thousands. Paul has seen miracles. Paul's seen the work of the Spirit. Paul is able to teach nonstop. And now he is enchained by his circumstances. And so in the same way, yeah, you've got a dream. You've got a vision. You have something you believe God wants you to do with your life. Just don't be surprised if God gets you there a different way. But when we don't recognize what God is doing, we end up caving into what if. So some of our wondering, God, why, 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 what if, what if, what if, what if leads us, unfortunately, and it's okay to ask what if, but it leads us, if we're not careful, to worry. This morning, what are you worried about? Like, what are you really concerned about? What is troubling you when you wake up in the morning? It's there. When you go to bed, it's there in the middle of the day. You try to avoid it. You try to push it out. But it keeps popping its way to the center of your brain. What is it that you're stressed out about? What keeps you saying, what, 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 what if? Now, I want to make a distinction before we move on. That there is a difference between worry and wisdom. Right? I'm not saying you shouldn't ask the what-if questions. As a matter of fact, it's okay to ask the what-if questions in the right place. So, so let me make a distinction. So you're thinking about going to college or you're in college right now. You should ask about the cost and benefit. You should actually look at the numbers before you sign at the, end of, at the beginning of every term. You should ask yourself, what if this, what if this major doesn't lead towards a job? What if this career path cannot support a family if you hope to support a family someday? What if there is a lower cost institution? Believe it or not, some cost less. What if there's a lower cost institution that will get me the training I need and the skills to begin my career path and leave me with less debt? What if? What if I should stay at home instead of living on campus because mom and dad are generous, hopefully, and will give me some ramen noodle at home? Like what if, what, what if, so those are some good what if questions. Think about relationship. Uh, guys, if you're thinking of getting married someday, you should ask yourself about the extended family. You should look at this beautiful woman and, and ask yourself, if I live next door to her mom and dad, which you may end up, will there be war or peace? What what if, what if she's more like her mom's temperament? What if she's more like her dad's? How are they related to one another if they're related at all? You need to ask yourself those, that's wisdom. That's, what I'm saying is that's not worry. It's wisdom to look at the scenario because you do not marry a woman, you marry a tribe. Hello. <laughs> you marry, and those of you who are not married yet, you're like, <laughs> those of you who are married are going, uh-huh. I married a tribe. Didn't marry one. I, I got a whole tribe. And with that, so, so 
again, that's not worry. That's wisdom. So there is a difference. But if we're not careful, if we don't factor Jesus, and that's what I want to get, is Paul factors Jesus into every equation. Paul centers Jesus into every part of his story. If you don't do that, then worry doubts God's ability or willingness to step in. So Paul has plenty of time to ask the scenarios, okay, if it got me in chains and I get to Rome, what do I do? It's okay for him to ask the questions. But obviously what we see in Paul's life is that he does not slip from asking questions to doubting God's presence in the middle of it. So worry says God's not able. Worry says God's not willing. For the follower of Jesus, you can ask the what if question. You can, you can be wise. You can think. You can discern. You can ask your friends and people in this church, what do you think, what do you think? You can actually use your brain and honor Jesus. It's not like, let go and let God. If you let go and let God, you are bound to fail. What you say is, God, you gave me a brain and you gave me a family of people. I want to think this through. I want to pray this through. I want to wisdom this through. I don't want to worry this through. Worry is the enemy of you enjoying God's presence in the middle of hard times. And catch me, you will have hard times. So you're like, hello, you're speaking my lingo. I am in hard times. My friend, worry is going to try to rob you of the joy that God wants to bring. In the Now, joy doesn't come when, when hard times go. No, you can have joy in hard times. You say, is that actually possible? Well, Paul actually wrote an entire letter to a church in Philippi whilst he's in jail. While Paul's in jail, he writes Philippians. So Philippians is known as the letter of what? Joy. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. He talks about joy more in Philippians than any other letter, and he's incarcerated on false charges. Paul had what we need, the ability to ask good questions and yet not worry. So Philippians 4, we'll put it on the screen for time. Verses 4 to 7, he says, rejoice in the Lord when? Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. And I will say it again because he knows that repetition helps. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is where? That's intriguing. Now he's, he's talking, uh, I think, on two levels. The coming of the Lord is near in that my trouble is going to end when Jesus returns and makes things new. But I think you could also look at it in another more practical terms, the Lord is where? Like right here. He's given us the Spirit. The Lord is near. So, if the Lord's near, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and what's going to happen? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice he did not say, when you pray, everything's going to change. Did he say that there? No, he says, when you pray with thanksgiving and you present your request to God, the peace of God, which transcends human understanding, it doesn't make sense. It's going to guard your heart because your heart's going to say, I wonder if God's done with me. It's going to guard your mind. It says, well, I sinned last week, therefore I deserve this. That's a lie from the enemy. You're a child of God. You're loved by the Father. We just sang it. He's a, he's a decent, decent, mediocre, mad father. That's who you are. That's who you are. He's a good, good father. And a good father knows that kids stumble. I'm a dad. I know my kids are going to stumble. 
but my heart towards them is good when they stumble and when they get it right. We have a good father. So worry is, is, is beginning to wonder, if, is God able to do this? Does God want to do this? God is with you. So when the what if turns to worry, just rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is near. So God's with you and you've got nothing to fear. Now, let's get back to Acts 28 because we're not done with the story. Let's jump. Acts 28 and we'll go to verse um, 24. So, so Paul's preaching the good news. And some were convinced, it says, by what he said, but others would not believe. It didn't say they could not believe. What did it say? They would not believe. So they heard the evidence and they found Jesus unconvincing. So they disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet which if you're new to the Bible is, is an entire book, one of the largest prophetic writings in the Old Testament called Isaiah. He says, and he quotes from Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have, have been calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They hardly close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears Understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Now, we'll get into that in a minute. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So let's just think about this, because I know this is an ancient text that may not make sense to most of us. But I just want to see the flow. He can... He compels them, he tries to persuade them from the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah. He says, if you want to see Jesus, look at Genesis. You want to see where Jesus is? Look at Exodus. Jesus is in Leviticus, Jesus is in Numbers, Jesus is in Deuteronomy. And then he takes them through the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament. And he says, Jesus, 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 don't you see what God had been doing? God had been preparing us. And now this man... That you murdered is the one that God had promised. But they leave. And, and Paul quotes what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul all quote this same text from Isaiah 6. This is one of those banner texts that the early Christians went to because here was the problem. If Jesus is God's Messiah, how come all the Jews reject him? Because everyone expected when Messiah comes, the, the faithful Jews will follow Messiah. But they had a problem. Most of the Jews did not follow Jesus the Messiah. So what did the church do? I want you to catch this. They went to the Bible. They didn't go to philosophical answers. They didn't go to comparative religions. They went to the text. And they said, no, this is exactly what Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 6. Now, if you know the story of Isaiah, we won't get into all of it. Isaiah had a job from God that you would never want. So my, God, I want to speak for you. No, you don't. Because sometimes God tells you to do something that's like really hard. So God tells Isaiah, I want you to tell my people about this coming judgment because they're idolaters, they're unfaithful. I love them. I'm a good, good father. That's who I am. That's who I am. But... They're a bad, bad group of children. That's who they are. That's who they are. And then here's what he tells Isaiah. Go and speak to them, but they're not going to listen to you. 
I'm telling you straight up, their, their heart is hard, their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf. They will not hear, they will not see. Tell them the word of the Lord. They're going to reject everything you say. Wow. So God sends a messenger that's faithful. Catch this. Isaiah is faithful and the people reject him. Just because the people reject him does not mean Isaiah is off. That is his point. So what the church does is says, this is exactly Isaiah is a type Isaiah and what happened seven year, 700 years before Jesus was, was telling of what was going to come when God's Messiah comes. Because Isaiah, and we don't have time this morning, Isaiah is the one more than any other prophet who predicted that the good news of the kingdom of God was going to be given to the Gentiles. So if you read Isaiah, which every Jew's listening knows Isaiah by heart, Isaiah predicted that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. That God's message of love and redemption would go to the non-Jews. The Jews rejected that. And they rejected Isaiah. And now they rejected Jesus. So all they do is when they don't know what to do, they go to the Bible. Even though God says they're not going to repent. Now what does that mean for us? I want you to catch this. I lost you in Isaiah, but come back. All right? What does that mean? It means that the scriptures spoke and the scriptures speak. The scriptures spoke and the scriptures speak. You, you have to see what's going on because exactly what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who all quote this verse and Paul, we ought to do the same thing. Isaiah was written to the nation of Israel in, Jer in Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus. God spoke through Isaiah to a group of people. But what Paul picks up on and everyone following Jesus picks up on is that wasn't just an ancient history lesson. The Bible is not just about what happened. It's about what happens. So the church had the right and you have the right to take what happened to look at what God spoke to a real group of people, real time, real space, in real history. And, and notice that it's not just about it's not just about God and Isaiah and Israel. It's about what God is going to do in our day. So this has huge ramifications about how we read the Bible. How do you read the Bible? You read things every day. Most of you today are going to read too many Facebook posts. You're going to read blogs. You're going to read magazines. You're going to read bumper stickers because Portland has the best. You're going to even read, some of you are going to read this ancient form of writing known as a book. It's ancient. It's called a book. You're going to read it. Now, hopefully in the mix, you're going to read the Bible. Let me just ask you. Do you read a Facebook post the same way you read the Bible? Sometimes we don't even think about how we interact with what we read. Do you give the same, you know, BBC app? Do you read an article? Do you give that the same weight as the Bible? Well, then, if not, why would you read the Bible differently? Why does what God said to an ancient group of people 2,000 plus years ago have any bearing on your world? There's some of you are Christians saying, because. Well, that's actually not enough of an answer. Because someone else says, well, I think that the Book of Mormon is God's revelation because it came to Joseph Smith by revelation through the angel and he wrote it down on the gold leaves that no one's ever found. But, what? I read that book. Well, what makes... What makes the Bible the Bible? 
What makes it authoritative? Now, I'm not here to mess up your faith. I'm here to actually bolster and strengthen it because we ought to do the same thing that Paul does and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John do is they recognize that the scriptures are not just any old text. Look at verse 25 because this is, this is where we're going to hook everything on. Verse 25. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. Here's the statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors. When Paul sees the scriptures, he does not see them as a post or a blog or any old book. What he says is, this is the writings of the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't say, because at synagogue, the scroll of Isaiah is read from time to time. You say Isaiah because that's how the British say it. And it sounds better. The scroll of Isaiah is unrolled. And, you know, here we are in the grace of God. And whatever. You're like, so, you know, he doesn't pull on that. He says, the Holy Spirit, it was a terrible British accent. The Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit spoke. What Paul recognized is that God himself gave us the writings. And God, who predicted the hardness of the hearts of Israel in the time of Isaiah's day, is the God who is speaking through the same scriptures today. So we could say the scriptures spoke and the scriptures speak. The writings outside of here, we cannot say the Holy Spirit. Just look at Facebook and I would say 99.9% .9 the Holy Spirit didn't say any of that. That was you. That was your friend. But when it comes to the writings, the Holy Spirit spoke real words through real men. Why? Because the Spirit spoke and the Spirit speaks. So the same spirit that spoke through Isaiah 700 years before Jesus can be quoted by Paul after the time of Jesus as speaking to their hardness of heart. That is, the Bible spoke to its original audience and the Bible spoke to the first century audience and second century and third century and now into the 21st century. The Bible is still speaking. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wrote them. Now, I don't have time to unpack, like, how does that apply? So instead, we're going to do an entire series on it. After Easter, the next series we're going to do is on the Ten Commandments, but not on the ten ways to make you a nice, moral, upkeeping American citizen. We're actually going to look at the Ten Commandments with a fresh lens on how to read the Bible. If God spoke to Moses on the mountain to the people of Israel these and many more than 10, 600 plus laws, how do I read them? How do I interpret them? How do I apply them? How do I make sense of what Moses says when Jesus seems to say things that are applied slightly differently? Same law. Moses gives a law. Jesus repeats it. Moses applied the law one way. Jesus seems to apply it a different way. How do I make sense of that? If any of that is intriguing, show up. If the church dies, I just killed it. Okay? I just killed it. That's where we're going after is because what we want to do is learn how to read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So it's like Old Testament, old, I don't get it. Let's just give me something new. Give me, the, give me the Jesus stuff. Then we forget that Jesus only makes sense if we understand what God had been saying beforehand. So we want to learn to read the entire Bible and we want to use the Ten Commandments as a way of learning how to read the Bible. I hope a few of you are intrigued by that. If not, chaos will ensue. All right.
Now, now what is this? Going back to this, because this is the heart of it. What Paul does, look at verse uh, 30, uh, 28 again. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. What Paul does, and the reason they leave the room, and the reason good Jews should have left the room, is what Paul says to them. Now, mine is so comical. Paul is chained literally to a Roman soldier who probably got converted. Luke, Luke doesn't tell us, I'm, I don't, but I'm got, I have to think, because Paul tells us in his letters, I've been preaching to all these guards, so pray for me. But he's telling the Jews, as Israel's heart was hard, your hearts are hard. Guess what? So God is giving this good news to non-Jews, a.k.a. in Rome, the church is already here, and it's made up of people who are mostly non-Jews, and that's God's plan because your heart is heart. He's, he's taken the news to people whose heart is soft. In other words, he punched them in the face with the Bible. Absolute punched them in the face. Because this, my friends, is an insult to a Jewish leader. These are the guys who are the leaders of God's kingdom in Rome. The Jewish community, he's saying, you're nothing but a rebel like Israel was 700 years ago. Why? Because you have rejected Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus is saying to you, I love you. I want you. You heard the good news. You reject Jesus. The gospel is not going to end. The church is going to explode in Rome and it's going to be made up of non-Jews and God predicted it. Ouch. So don't harden your heart. Now, I don't think that Paul is making an anti-Semitic statement. If you read Romans 9 through 11, we're going to study Romans starting in the fall. Paul says, I would like to go to hell if my own Jews would be saved. I would say, God, condemn me to hell and save my countrymen. So we can't say Paul's saying he's anti-Jewish. No. His heart is to see his own Jewish brothers and sisters saved. But he does know that the Bible spoke and the Bible speaks. And the Bible spoke of the hardness of Israel, even though he sent the messengers. And now so Paul, because he's read his Bible, knows, you know what? My own people are not going to believe. Man, I hate that. But I'm going to keep preaching the love of God and the gospel of Jesus. All right. Before we go and, and worship and go to the tables, I want us to think about how these two thoughts collide because I gave you two totally different ideas. First I said, don't, don't worry about the what if. And then I said, the gospel spoke and the gospel speaks. I want us to think about how those collide. What does it mean to not cave in to worry? Now I'm not saying we don't wonder and question. That's okay. If you have a little bit of a doubt about a situation, that's okay. If you invite Jesus into it, and if you end the day saying, God, I don't get it all, but I believe that you're here and that you're a good, good father. Worry is doubting the goodness of God. So let's just say you're in this scenario right now. You're wondering what to do. How do these collide? Look at the end of Philippians 4. We'll put it on the screen because I want you to see Paul actually in Philippians ties these two thoughts. How do we not cave into worry and how do we believe that God spoke and God speaks. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what does he say? Think about these things. Now, he doesn't say read the Bible. 
But let's just look at that list. True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Would you agree that the scriptures are those things? So I'm not saying Paul is just saying read the Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Did you ever go to kids' class? And you'll grow, you'll grow, grow. Oh, come on, let's just do it. And you'll grow, grow, grow. Okay, there we go. We're all giddy. It's early. All right. I don't think he's just saying just the Bible, but it's not less than the Bible. So if you want to defeat your worry, Paul says how? Think about whatever's pure, true, lovely, right, admirable, praiseworthy. Get your mind on those things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. This is beautiful. He's not just saying the Bible, but he's saying, Paul actually bombastically says, follow me as I follow Jesus. I, I can't say that. I would love to say that. I'd say, follow me 20% of the time when I'm following Jesus. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus. So what he's saying is, not just the Bible, but as the Bible is lived out, as you learn God's truth and you begin to live it out, it transforms who you are. And when you are more in line with who Jesus created you to be, your propensity to be crushed by worry will be reduced. I'm not saying that you'll never worry. I'm not saying followers of Jesus never worry. Don't, don't misquote me. We all give in to worry at times, but we don't have to live there. And that's what I'm talking about. We don't have to be swallowed up, consumed by it. And Paul says, whatever's pure or lovely, or whatever you learned, received, or heard from me, whatever you see Jesus' people doing, and, and you put it into practice, in the end, he says, the peace of God will be with you. It sounds like Paul is grounded in the scriptures. He's beginning to live them out. And he's saying to his brothers and sisters, the way of Jesus is the way of peace. Not just knowing about Jesus, but if you learn of Jesus and follow Jesus, you will be on the path of peace. And you will remember that the God of peace is actually with you. So over, Paul, over time, Paul could say, follow me as I follow Jesus. So the invitation today, my friends, is to leave here hungry. We've invited you to the table to leave here hungry. Hopefully, at the end of this gathering, you go home slightly dissatisfied with your diet. Because as you look back, now I'm not saying bummed to the point of despondency. I'm not saying Oh, I hate going to church because I just feel terrible at myself. I hope, though, you leave saying, you know what, this week I want to make the decision today to ground my life on the reality of all that God has said, old and new. I'm going to ground my life in the Scriptures. Why? Because I want the peace of God, which, which surpasses all human understanding, to guard my heart and guard my mind when worry knocks on my door. I want to say... I am sorry, no room at the inn. God's peace lives here. So I reject worry in light of God's peace. That doesn't happen overnight, my friends. But it can happen for you. The invitation is to leave here hungry, more hungry for Jesus. So what I want us to do 
this morning is in a, in a little bit, as we worship, and Josue and Alyssa are going to come, and we're going to worship God in response. Why do we do sing at the beginning and the end? Because the sing at the beginning hopefully begins to shift your thinking Godward, because you all walked in with all sorts of stuff on your brain. But then the back end of our worship, the way we set it up, is that we, now that we've heard the truth of God, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is, whatever is praiseworthy and excellent, now we can sing those things. Hopefully now your mind is more ready to sing the truth of God and believe it. So the invitation today is to leave here hungry, that you'll encounter Jesus and you'll want more of him. That you'll understand a little bit more of his, his, his word to us and you'll want more of it. Hopefully you leave here hungry this morning. Lord, we love you and we're grateful that because of your goodness, we can come not as enemies, but as children. Not as refugees where we're stuck in a camp and have no rights. No, as loved ones. You're a good, 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 good father. So we want to sing of your goodness. We want to live it out. We want to walk in it. We want to go to the table a little later and eat and drink. Reminders of your faithfulness, your body, your blood, your sacrifice to rescue us from our own darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of light and of love. Lord, I pray this morning that you'll receive our worship not just out of our lips, but out of our hearts. We love you, Lord.